Welcome to the Apple Store in Soho. Please welcome tonight's moderator, Scott Feinberg from The Hollywood Reporter, along with the actors Penelope Ann Miller and James Cromwell. Let's hear it for him. I just have to share a, a observation that, or a fact that was shared with me earlier today, which is I believe you are the tallest actor ever nominated for an Oscar and I think I've got to be one of the shortest moderators who've ever interviewed you, so we have a, a fun <laughs> dynamic there. there but, and, but no, but I have loved uh, the opportunity actually just a few weeks ago on the West Coast to, to chat with you and the rest of the team from this movie and prior to that with you in particular because you are such an um, experienced actor, you've seen everything, and yet even you uh, say that it's, it's very hard to predict what's going to work to the point where with not only this one which i could see somebody being skeptical about but even even babe you weren't sure right oh no definitely not uh, uh you know in that little australian picture with animals and nobody that anybody knew uh let's welcome you coming penelope, up? penelope ann miller everybody let's welcome i don't mind if i join you <laughs> Hi, we, we haven't seen each other in about a day. A day. Yeah. We've seen each other, well, we didn't even work together in this movie, and we've seen each other more than probably I see my husband. So, anyway, that's fun. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Sorry to be fashionably late. No, well, we're just talking about the fact that, you know, it's, I guess it's always hard to predict when, when a movie's going to work, otherwise everyone would do it. But, like, in this case, um, did you guys have any sense that it could be something this special, or did you just, what drew you to it initially when you have a guy who I presume you hadn't heard of, most of us hadn't heard of this writer-director, Michelle, before, or the co-star? Pronounce his name, even. As an avicious, right? Yeah, not bad. Very good, I'm <laughs> um, impressed. But, like, you know, when you have somebody come to you who, you, who you've never heard of as the writer-director, two co-stars nobody's heard of, and then they say we're going to do it in black and white and silent. And not pay you much. And not pay you, not much. Pay you right. What, what's, what was your instant response yeah <laughs> i'm in where do i sign right. um yeah it's it was definitely um very bizarre i mean um i um my agent definitely called and said that there were clients of his that weren't even interested in meeting at all you know um i i don't know if they were intimidated by the thought of acting in a silent film or they didn't think anyone would go see it so what's the point um, so, um, it was definitely, but I was intrigued because I love the 20s and I'm very nostalgic about old Hollywood and I've watched a lot of old movies growing up. It's one of the reasons, one of the main reasons I wanted to be an actress. I loved black and white films and I loved the actresses of, of those that, from the 20s, 30s, 40s. Um, and um, so I was definitely intrigued for sure and I thought how cool that it would director would be so bold and daring. I got to meet this guy no matter what. Um, I did do the movie Chaplin with Robert Downey Jr. and I did play a silent film actress in that film, Edna Proviance. So I had a little bit of silent film acting training experience. Um, so uh, we got to reenact a couple scenes from films that Chaplin did with Edna. So that was really cool. So I was probably one of the only actors that Michelle met that had actually quote-unquote done a silent right, film. Right. So, um, 
So that definitely was um, maybe helped me get the part. <laughs> but um, but I, I, you know, I was very impressed by him. And um, as you can see in the movie, his preciseness, his passion for classics. Um, he just was so involved in every aspect of this film. And I could tell by meeting him, his love of what he was doing. And I just thought, you know, if nobody sees it, I don't care. I'm just going to have fun making yeah. it. And here we are. And yeah, and with 10, 10 Oscar nominations later, and and Golden Globe and, Golden Globe and, and all the SAG Ensemble, ah. all this stuff. So, um, for you, it was a lunch that it began at, right? Well, it began with the offer, right. which sounded preposterous, something <laughs> stupid. Um, and uh, I thought, uh, got to meet this guy who's right. crazy enough to do a black and white right. silent film in Hollywood. Uh, I wanted to know whether it was just a gimmick. Uh, actually, somebody last night at the, or the night before at the AARP Awards <laughs> said, nah, I didn't like it so much. I thought it was just a gimmick. Oh, really? I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, somebody from Paramount, wouldn't oh. you know? Well, they're just <laughs> jealous that they didn't buy the movie. And, well, you know, you, that's, I, I must admit, even though I, that was one of the questions I asked Michelle, you don't ever know until you actually see it whether it is just a gimmick, a hook on which to hang a concept to create a little stir. But it isn't. It, that's what Michel must have said to me, and I didn't listen to him. I didn't understand it until I actually was in the theater with an audience watching the film, that there is a special relationship between the artist, what's on screen, and the audience as they create the story from what they see inside the frame unlike most other pictures, almost all other pictures, where it's handed to you so that you can even text your babysitter and get the plot of the movie because it's coming into your ear. And it's superfluous anyway because the dialogue is usually a cover for what... So you're, you're sort of watching it and it's, you know, the people don't pay attention, very much attention to story, in my opinion. And this is a film all about story and the story is created by each member of the audience from what they discern on the screen. And so uh, the film goes along and everybody follows along. It's, you know, they get over their inhibitions at watching a silent film. And then their story sort of peaks at a moment, but it's not over, but they have no idea where it's going. And at that moment in the theater, they are silent and they are a silent movie audience watching a piece of fiction unfold for which they have no idea where it goes. And so it's a surprise. And of course, it involves sound. And it involves him coming to terms with sound. And everybody leaves with that sense of uh, joyousness and transformation that's at the end of this film. So. One of the, along with the, um you know, Penelope's connection to having done Chaplin. Another sort of funny, strange coincidence uh, here is that your parents, uh, James, your father, John Cromwell, was an actor and a director, and your mother, Kay Johnson, an actress, both of whom essentially started at the dawn of the sound era. And I know that um, that's something that you weren't necessarily even conscious of when you did the film, but have come to think about afterwards. Can you? Uh, talk about that a little bit. No, you know, it never actually never occurred to me that it had anything to do with my father's career because, of course, it, his career started because sound was introduced. 
But of course, all those he knew all those people, and he had grown up. He, his idea of cinema involved that, basically, although he'd been in the theater. It wasn't until I actually saw, of course, it's all the places in Hollywood that he would have gone. It's him, it's his industry, uh, the same people, all the people who made the, 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 uh, the journey from silent films to, uh, you know, to the talkies. Uh, um, my, mother's, my mother was Cecil B. DeMille's first leading lady and in those days the film stock was um, sort of on the sepia side and so the makeup tests involved the producer and the director and anybody else talking with the makeup man about the flaws in the person's face and then painting them in with yellow and brown which showed up on the screen in black and white uh, as uh, as proper, but as you walked across the lot, you just announced to everybody on the lot, "Oh, she has crow's feet. These things are too." Uh. What would they do? How they would they would pronounce they, them, and then what would they do? They no, would they just would they would they, they would create the illusion that they just like a woman does with makeup today, supposedly. Right. You compens you com I don't know because not Never. me. I don't even know what he's talking about. I don't know no idea. <laughs> So they would compensate, and it was the compensation oh, for the inadequacy of the face that makes right. it more pronounced. Because anybody who knows what the face says, oh, look, at she's got a big line here, and whatever. <laughs> wow. Wow. Interesting. So it was, a, it was like a special effect in a way. Yeah, like, special, yes. definitely a special <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, who needs CGI? That's exactly. um, So the next thing, I just wanted to ask, you know, when you're, in your case, I, I don't believe you've done anything like a silent movie before? Babe was mostly silent. Mostly silent, okay, well. I only had 16 lines. We're two wow. veterans right here yeah. from silent films. It's amazing when you and think actually, about that. Yeah, yeah. And I began, uh, I did the whole, my first film, I played a chauffeur, and really? I didn't have a whole lot to say in that film either. So any, any of my reactions around the table and falling down the stairs and coming in and having the pot land on me and that part and right. actually almost everything was a silent gag Interesting. and as Michelle says you know words are easy and we, we get used to them and we don't put as much you know someone says I love you okay that's great you love me wonderful but when one really expresses that love through a gesture a touch and you know an embrace that's the moment that communicates. We right. do a lot of our communication right. silently. Well, it, well it, it, I was reading an article today. Of course, I'm always so surprised every time I hear Michelle speak or, or do an interview because I'm always learning more yeah. about his process. But he talks about it being such a, a sensory, sensual um, experience. And we, we really don't have that as much anymore, you know? It's, it's really about the senses. You're using the senses differently than, right. than we do now. And we've lost to that. To make the film, you mean? To, as an actor, you're using senses? We're using sex senses as, as an audience, and I think that's what he wanted to make, a very sensual experience for the audience. But for you guys putting together your performances on the set in a, in a different way than you, than you normally would, I, you know, in the silent era, they would play music during the scenes, they would yell directions at the actors during the scenes because supposedly that helps to evoke a better performance. Was that stuff that was also re-employed on this movie? Well, definitely he played music on the set. And the great thing about that, I've never experienced anything like that. Obviously we could get away with it because they weren't recording the sound, but 
um, it really, like it does for as an audience, it creates a mood, it creates an atmosphere, it evokes an emotion, and it really helped us when we were shooting the scenes. But not only does it help the actor, it really helped the crew. So everybody in the crew was all caught up in the emotion of the scene. So they were all part of this experience. They weren't just sitting there, you know, as you say, texting while, you know, I mean, they're all like, oh, you know, oh, this is tragic. Oh, this is happy, you know. I mean, other, and, and then as far as direction, I mean, he wasn't yelling during our takes. I mean, he was very respectful of it because we were talking to each other and we needed to react to each other and listen to each other because we could hear each other. The only thing that would sometimes get in the way was the dog, you know, you know, Uggy, Uggy, up, 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 and I, of course, I have that breakfast table scene where right. Uggy's, you know, he's trying to ham it up with Uggy to make me laugh and to cheer me up, and so, um, you know, there was a lot of there was a lot of talk to Uggy, right. the dog. Um, well, actually, if I if I can interrupt for one second, we we do want to intersperse some some clips from the film, and that was going to be our first. So uh, we'll take just a, these are short clips, but just to kind of emphasize what we're talking about, the breakfast table scene. Okay. You know so much more. You know, that scene is an homage to, uh, from Citizen Kane. I was Kane. just going to ask, yeah. But you know so much more about that because it is silent and the, perfor the performances of both actors uh, and the nature of the relationship between the two characters is so... Com it, you get such a, uh, a hit about what is wrong with the marriage. Because it isn't a great big thing, you know... Uh, he's, you know, he's been, he has an affair, she's bored, they haven't had sex for years. It isn't. It's somebody's inability. you know? <laughs> somebody's inability to find the humor right. in the circumstance and be right. comfortable with somebody else's uh, notoriety right. and, and the life that they live outside of the relationship, which can get very wearing on a person. And, uh, and it's really just so just in those moments, the relationship is done. And, and if you, you know, people, when they watch this, they, the first time they don't really get, the first time I didn't get it. I, I, maybe their audience is not as slow as I am. <laughs> it takes three or four times. And then I, I look and I think, oh, wow. Every time I see it, I see some other level oh, yeah. that he's introduced in such a specific and artistic way. This, the, the thing, I thought about it. This is a work of art. A work of art is something in which everything contributes to the whole. There are no mistakes. Because in most films that are made today, there are mistakes. And you can see the mistake. 
the mistake in the story, in the plot, in one actor, in an effect, in some action. There's, and you know, the audience goes, oh, gee, they wouldn't do that. That car couldn't. Right. And it's gone. It's gone. In this, everything contributes right. to, to drawing you deeper and deeper into the story. It's almost like you really can't make a mistake because if you do, it'll fall apart. Right. And that's why I think it's such a tribute and testament really to our filmmaker, creator, director, writer, editor, Michelle Hazanavishu's, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> because he ha- the movie had to work and be operating full force on all cylinders or else the movie would fail. Yeah, I Just mean... Just had to. With, uh, especially, I've heard... James talk about this a lot, that with today's, the majority of today's movies, they can, you know, story is secondary, essentially, to effects and all these other things, and so people, it's not even, they're not even necessarily looking for a, for a well, you know, a well-told story as opposed to a thrill ride. Here, when the only thing that's going on for you is the story, it really has to be uh, heightened. And, and I think that's why we got so many nominations yeah. is because the art direction, the, the cinematography, the costumes, the, you every, know, element. every element of this film had to be at its best. Right. And advance the narrative, by the way. Because the costumes, we were with Mark Bridges last week, the costume designer, who's finally gotten a nomination after doing There Will Be Blood, so many other great ones finally nominated and, and w- every little thing has a, a purpose. The costume color, the like, for instance, Jean Dujardin, who plays George, as he starts to, as his career deteriorates, you see him in suits that are less, fit, that fit him less well, because it shows he's not the man that he used to be. He's sort of, uh, just, anyway, I don't want to, not he, meaning to give him a he, lecture. And he goes yeah. towards the grayscale. Yeah. So he yeah. starts out very high contrast, and suddenly, at, towards the middle of the film, when it's, he starts to right. disintegrate, he fades into the background. He's no longer identifiable, no longer separated from his surroundings. And, and Pepe, who had started out, she, right, yeah. she emerges from anonymity. So but, all of that plays a, is a role in the movie, including the music. It all is a character. It's all accentuating absolutely. the story. Well, let's look at the scene in which Doris leaves George. This is a, a big moment in the film.
I get sad. Yeah. <laughs> well, I want to ask you if you can share. I mean, as as James said, there's not a ton of backstory about what they were like before things started to go sour. Right, right. Yeah. Were they ever happy, or was it always? You know, what what is causing her to be that unhappy? I mean, I think it's a lot of things. I mean, my backstory was that I was wealthy to begin with and helped him through, you know, the beginning of his career as his as his stardom rose. And as he became more famous, um, he became very involved in his career. And um, as a lot of actors are, very <laughs> narcissistic. Um, and, um, and really, I sort of slowly but surely became secondary and more ignored and and left out and it was really all about him and his family you look at that self-portrait of him in the film and he's saying hello and goodbye to it every day and, um, and then there's the dog who's also not only his pet but his co-star and which I think that even helps in the in that breakfast scene I mean there's just it's just I'm always constantly being ignored being left out and there's always someone else and then of course when I see him with Pepe in the photograph at that point it's just a silly sort of paparazzi shot but it's once again you know someone else is replacing me so um, when you meet us in the movie I mean I'm definitely feeling um, extremely frustrated and we're not talking to each other and we're at an impasse and I'm feeling ignored and, and, um, and I'm suffering, I'm hurt and, um, and I don't know how to get it back. I don't know how to get the love back and the joy back. And, but it, yeah, I mean, I'd like to believe that there was something there um, and he just really gets caught up in his stardom and, um, and there's no room for me and, and the love is sort of died in some way. I think my character really wants it back, yeah. but I think he's gone. The, the, but the, and I, the politics are really interesting because his performance is so quiet and hers is very compelling and it's completely self-involved. And so when she says to him, I'm hurting, and he says, so are millions of us. The resonance, of course, is we are privileged beyond belief and you can't project yourself past your own petty concerns to look at the larger, which is he, I guess, is in some way is coming to recognize and see, because that's, of course, what his career serves. They made these films to try to lighten people's lives right. who were suffering under the Depression. And, uh, you know, it's just, in that, just those two lines. And the line is... Why do you refuse to speak? Of course, is the thematic line of the entire movie. And then it goes right to the core, which is, you know, Tom Hanks once said, well, we, we were working on a picture. We were all sitting around in General's uh, in uh, uh, Green Mile. And he said, wow, look at these overpaid, privileged actors pretending that they're ordinary people. And of course, it's, it's what we do. And, uh, you know, we ape it and really forget sometimes the connection that we have and the, the detail and the nuance that goes into representing people's lives who are not as blessed as we are when we do it. What it sounds like, looks like, you know, that kind of verisimilitude. Uh, and it has it in this, it, it has it in this film, as far as I'm concerned. You know, and, and I think the reason that it touches people now is a modern, film and, and that was another thing I was reading today in an article about Michelle was that he wanted to make a modern movie. It just happens to be 
set in a different era, but the the storyline, you know, the 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 just I mean, everything is really something that we all can relate yeah, to. Timeless. We can relate to career, you know, rising and falling, love coming and going, you know, failure, um, depression, you know, um, the Great Depression. We're in a financial crisis. They were in a financial crisis. So all the all you know all of the themes are extremely relevant. Absolutely, and I think that that is probably largely why this movie has connected so well, and mm -hmm. and really like more than virtually any film this year that is set in the present captures the zeitgeist of the present more because of that. But what's interesting here is the difference between your characters is that. Doris is sort of around during the boom times and then she bounces. But uh, Clifton is there through thick and thin and even deals with some, you know, puts up with some odd behavior, including what we're going to see in this scene where he is in almost a mercy killing kind of let go. So let's see the scene when Clifton is fired. So, um, if you haven't seen the film already, what you would, what would be helpful to know is that George, prior to this, is living and working with Clifton in this mansion and living high, and now all of a sudden he's in this sort of row house or whatever and barely getting by and can't even pay Clifton, and it seems to me that it would be just out of uh, the la uh, sort of an act of decency almost to, or a shame that he can't keep you around in the, you know, he doesn't want to keep you without compensating you. Is that how you saw it? Uh, well, how I saw it as an actor is something else altogether. Okay. We won't go into that. But I remember somebody asked in one of these uh, question uh, and answer things, they said, what is the fascination for the audience with the dog? And Michelle's response was, the, the dog follows this guy that we as an audience see as an egoist, self-involved, overblown, privileged, uh, you know, manipulative, actually when you think of it, not so nice a guy. And yet this dog follows him without command, which then indicates to an audience, well, the guy can't be totally bad, I mean, if the dog likes him. And in some way, Clifton is the same way. Clifton sees something in him that allows him, that where he wants to say. So actually, 
this is the first time that George actually deals with somebody else's pain in an appropriate, in what he thinks is the appropriate way instead of the way he deals with his wife. So it makes him, it makes him more human. It's not what happens to me, it's how you see him. Oh, he's trying to, it's, it's misguided because he wants to stay, but, but, but it's a sweet gesture on his part. And in so doing, he sort of severs his last link to the life that he used to have. That's correct, too. And, and yeah, so he's, he's trying to be noble. And, and, and it's funny, too, because Pepe, you know, Bernice Bijou, she also must see something in him. Yeah. Because she falls from when he's in his heyday. Um, so true. she must see something in him because she does, that love is sort of instigated almost immediately and then it carries through, so... And to hammer home the idea that there must be something decent in him, that not only would you work for him or be married to him at all, but that you would come back when he was down and out, even after he's done that to you. Let's look at the scene in the bar where he's probably at his one of his low, well, certainly not the low point, because we know when that comes, but one of his low points uh, in the bar. I don't know that it's necessarily reasonable or realistic to expect that this is going to spawn, you know, a wave of black and white silent movies, but what I think it might do is inspire people to think outside the box a little bit, and how, uh, how do you hope that will unfold for, for each of you? I mean, you know, the bottom line is, um, as artists, you know, you want to do something that drives you and that you're pa passionate about. And I think it's very hard, you know, um, when you're limited to, you know, the box, as you were talking about. Um, and a lot of times when you're hired as an actor, you know, it's a question of, you know, who's going to finance the film, whether the f there's a decent enough role, whether they're going to want you. And the same thing as a filmmaker when you're making a film, Studios don't necessarily finance films, you know, unless they're proven commercially. And the beauty, one of the great beauties, and there are many about this film, is that you have a filmmaker who had a passion, who had a dream. There was a huge, incredible risk that took a lot of courage um, for him to do, but he had such a great desire to do it that he was going to do it, no matter what. And we had an incredible situation where he had a producer who actually could get the financing and use some of his own money, ultimately because financing, some of the financing fell through. So he, they could actually make this picture and film it in Hollywood, you know, which is also very rare. A story about Hollywood actually filmed in Hollywood um, with Hollywood crews and Hollywood actors. And there's about 68 of us American actors. Uh, uh, you know, a lot of people think it's a French film with French actors, but only the two leads are French. And, um, and, 
and then we also had an incredible situation. We had a Harvey Weinstein who actually saw this film before Cannes who said, I love this film. So it was all about passion, 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 artistic integrity, following your artistic integrity. And we as actors chose to do the film, not because we thought we'd make money, because we didn't, not because we thought we'd win Academy Awards, because there was no way to predict any of that, um, or get critical acclaim, or get fame and fortune, or any of those things. We did it because we loved the idea of it. We loved the artistry of it. And um, so to me, when a movie like that succeeds, it's just, and when people go to see it and love it and embrace it and it gets all of these accolades, I mean, it just, it's huge because if you can follow your dream and follow your passion and do it for the right reasons, it can all turn out great and beautiful. And so it's just really meaningful to all of us and that's why I think we've been so passionate and why we've been on this incredible, exhausting journey. <laughs> Um, and why we're out here talking to you today is because we believe in it and we believe in it as an art form and, and, and we just hope that we can share it with more and more and more of you and we hope that you will agree and share it with more and more more of your friends, so. No, that's true, and, and James, it really is like a middle finger to the remakes, adaptations, sequels, you know, isn't it? I mean, this is, three, this is back to what movies were originally about, which was original storytelling. Yeah, you know, um, on a number of levels, Cocteau said that film would never be an art until it was as inexpensive as a pencil and a piece of paper. It's actually gotten almost to that point now. You can make a, someone made a film on their iPhone and it showed at the Berlin Film Festival. You can make a projectionable, I mean, a distributable quality film on a Canon 5D. Uh, so everything is possible. The, the bottleneck is that you can make the thing, but you can't get it distributed because the studios hold on to the distribution. So what I love the finger saying is, <laughs> in spite of your resistance, because they actually took the uh, assemblage to Warner Brothers. They had a deal with Warner Brothers France for distribution, but not in America. And they took it to Warner Brothers, and Warner Brothers turned up their noses at it. Very short-sighted. So that Michel and Tomas left America thinking, how are we going to have the American cast and crew get a chance to see this film and they were going to make a DVD? What I hope this will show to filmmakers, young filmmakers all over the country is, you do not have to make a film within the conventions, the, the box, the mind view, the framing of Hollywood because you can now go outside the box and it will be, if you create a work of art, which is what we should always strive to do instead of what Hollywood strives to do, which is make a buck. So if you make a work of art, that work of art now can be seen. You know, it's like I have a film that I want to direct and it has a lot of flashbacks in it and a lot of producers go, oh, now flashbacks, they never work, uh, you know, they never work, they're always boring, they're always taking out the story. And then Slumdog Millionaire comes and wins everything. It's all flashbacks. Where is the wisdom to this thing, you know? So, uh, I hope uh, there is no formula. It's just about you know doing something great and doing it in the to the best of your ability. And um, and the, and the, the the other beauty and the irony of all of this is that this this whole movie is a is a love letter to to movies. It's a love letter to cinema, and to be then for it to come full circle and then be honored by 
filmmakers and by Hollywood and by audiences. It just, you know, it, it's just great. Because, I mean, who would say, oh, yeah, black and white silent film. That's the ticket. Let's go out. You know, <laughs> let's raise that money. Let's go sell that one. It's a contest. I hate. So does Michelle. He doesn't like it. You know, he said at the Directors Guild, he said, uh, I'm, I'm not an American. He said, I'm also not French. I'm a filmmaker. And as a filmmaker and as an artist and somebody who has a vision, I don't make a comparison between, how do you, between one thing and another thing. How do you compare a little $12 million black and white silent film with a $250 million 3D extravaganza? Even though they're, so I, I think the, the, the fa this whole idea of comparison uh, is, is uh, detrimental to any artist trying to do their work. And I, and I hope that, that, I hope this sort of gets out as well. It's not about competition, it's about full self-expression, about something you believe passionately in. We do that, this industry will survive. We do the other. Well, thank you guys so much and congratulations. And even though competition, you still have good luck on the 26th. That'll be <laughs> Look, it always helps. It helps those little trains that couldn't and could. I mean, we, we, we don't have that studio backing us. So by all, I mean, competition, you're right. We're all winners, really. Um, but for us right now, it, it, it's only helping sell our film. And that's all we want to do. So go see it if you haven't. And thanks again. James Cromwell, Penelope Ann Miller, thank you so much for coming.